our final evening together. Hmm. And, and I'd like uh, this evening to, <clears throat> to speak about um, 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 a quality, a mental quality, the presence or absence of which plays a huge part in determining the degree of contentment that we experience in our lives, as well as our progress on this path, this path of awakening. And really one could say that it's the, the cultivation and maturing of this quality that is the central intention of this practice and this path. Uh, and this is, as Christine has mentioned, the, the quality of equanimity. And its importance, um, I think, is reflected in its place in a number of the key lists that... Um, we find in the Buddhist teaching. So it's the fourth of the four Brahma-Viharas. Yeah? It's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening that Christina spoke about this morning. It's the tenth of the ten paramis, or perfections. It's the fourth of the four rupajanas or states of concentration. And so it goes on. You see, it has this sort of uh, almost like ultimate place in these, these lists. And... and uh, you know, this, I think, points to you know, the fact that it, it really is a, a quality that in its mature development, as, as Christina said yesterday, is really close to the full freedom that we call nibbana. And the Pali for this uh, quality, this, this term equanimity, is called, is, has two, there are two frequently used Pali terms. One is upeka, so U P. E K K H A with one of those things. What are these called? John? A macron on it. One of those things along the, over the last A. And, and the other term is tatra majatata, which means there, in the middle, standing. So standing there in the middle of things. Christina referred to that yesterday, and and, and I love that, and I think that's a really helpful pointer to this. And it is, it's actually, um, you know, equanimity is the sort of word that you only ever really hear Dharma teachers using, isn't it? Because it's a sort of slightly sort of antique kind of word. But it is, a, you know, it's actually a, 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 the meaning of that word, a sort of Latin meaning, uh, you know, equal-mindedness, equanimity, that's pretty good, actually, as a, as a translation. We, we've said all week that it's difficult to find words to translate uh, Pali terms, but actually, you know, that sense of even-mindedness, or, you know, the dictionary says, impartiality and undisturbed by good or ill fortune, as a definition of equanimity. And, and that gives us a flavor of it, doesn't it? That sense of, well, there's a lovely term, a phrase that uh, I've just discussed, um, come across that the Buddha uses a few times in the suttas to describe those who have a very mature level of this quality. He describes them as faring evenly midst the uneven. I think that's rather good, faring evenly midst the uneven. And, you know, when we, when we hear this sense of it's, you know, this very... Um, quality that's close to nibbana and, and this sort of goal of the path, we may think, oh, you know, well, that's, 
That's beyond me. But it's a quality we all know. You know, you couldn't get through a week on retreat like this without having a fair deal of equanimity, you know? Just the willingness to come back and begin again, you know? Come back to the breath and begin again, you know? Sit through the storms of the mind or the pains of the body you know, this is a quality that we have and we know. And yes, it's another spectrum word. You know, what we're talking about is, is a quality that, that we have and we know and we can cultivate and we can deepen. You know. there, may be, there may be just a slight sense in the mind of, hmm, I'm not quite sure that I, I like the sound of the perfection of equanimity. Because doesn't it sound a little bit sort of, well, beige, you know? <laughs> like the whole world sort of goes a bit, you know, like one of those Scandinavian paint catalogues with respect to our Scandinavian visitors, you know, where it's all, you know, <laughs> it's all sort of different beautiful shades of, of sort of beigey, whitey. You, know, you have that sort of feeling, well, okay, it's fine for the stone Buddha who's sort of equine. Equanimous, but wouldn't the world lose its color? Wouldn't it lose its aliveness? You know. But let's think. You know, think of your quietest moments over the last few days. How do they feel? You know, the, the moments where the sense of reactivity quietened, the heart grew a bit more peaceful. Were joy and love more or less accessible in those moments. You know. I mean, don't we find that when the heart quietens down, there's a sense of something opens and, and experience feels more abundant and, and alive and full of blessings. You know. And we can really see why the Buddha described this quality as beautiful. You know, as beautiful, as sublime, you know, and said, really, this highest happiness that is peace, as we've spoken, is the peace of equanimity. Some of you may know this poem. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when something goes wrong, if you can take criticism without resentment, if you can face the world without lies, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without sleeping pills, then you're probably a dog. <laughs> and um, it does seem as if uh, our non-human friends are often better at a certain sort of equanimity than we are. Uh, the, the Buddha um, spoke about this experience of being in the world with all those things that the dogs seem able to weather and, and we, uh, 
struggle with as, as being in this world of, of worldly conditions that spin us around. He said these, these eight winds, as, as they're sort of colloquially translated, but these eight forces and conditions spin us around the world, these conditions of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of fame and disrepute, and of pleasure and pain. I mean, anyone not experience all of those? You know? And of course, we want the first one of each of those pairs, don't we? And we don't really want the second. And yet, this is the nature of the world, the very nature of the world. And I like the sort of colloquial idea of these as being a bit like winds, because it just shows, in a sense, how impersonal they are. <laughs> you know, these are the forces that spin the world, is what the Buddha says in his little sutta about this. These are forces that spin around the world. Uh, and that can help us to, to practice not taking them personally, you know. Because we can see that what, what causes us to spin with them is the sense, is the degree of reactivity to them, you know, is the degree to which we are sort of, um, you know, pu pushing away some of those and pulling, you know, the pleasant ones towards us. So just to think about some of them, gain and loss, you know, we, we might initially think of this in terms of material gain and loss, but we can see that, you know, gain and loss comes in many different forms, doesn't it, you know, uh, and that, um, you know, sport, politics, jobs, opportunities, um, on retreat, the sense of good and bad sitting, so we can sometimes cling to one and push away the other, feels like a a loss of something, and then the sort of deeper, you know, losses that we can face in our life, um, in terms of health and separations and bereavements. Uh, and you know, the Buddha in this sutta makes clear the obvious point: these happen to us all. These happen to us all. And um, Joseph Goldstein likes to Joseph Goldstein likes to speak about his two laws of spiritual thermodynamics, the first of which is that anything can happen at any time, and the second of which is, if it's not one thing, it'll be something else. You know? um, and, and we can see that, in a sense, what intensifies the sense of gain and loss often is the sense of ownership. You know, you may possibly have had the experience this week of coming into the hall for a sitting and finding that somebody else was sitting on your mat, you know, your cushion. Yes, a few people nodding around the room, you know, and just noticing how that feels, you know. We so easily take a sense of ownership, don't we, of things. And of course, the more ownership there is, the more we set ourselves up for loss, don't we, you know. The more there's even a sense of identification with what we think should happen, how we think things should be. We know how painful that is because so often things change. This is, a, this is a, an ancient Taoist parable uh, along this theme. A man named Si Weng owned a beautiful female horse which was praised far and wide. One day this beautiful horse disappeared. The people of his village offered sympathy to him for his great misfortune. Si Weng said simply, that's the way it is. A few days later, the lost mare returned, followed by a beautiful stallion. 
The village congratulated Si Wang for his good fortune. He said, that's the way it is. Some time later, Si Wang's only son, while riding the stallion, fell off and broke his leg. The village people once again expressed their sympathy at his misfortune. He said again, that's the way it is. Soon after, war broke out, and all the young men of the village except Si Wang's lame son were drafted and were killed in battle. The village people were amazed at Si Wang's good luck. His son was the only young man alive in the village, but Si Wang kept his same attitude through all the turmoil, gains and losses. He gave the same reply, that's the way it is. You know, and it's, you know, it's a parable, and, you know, if that's not to sound a bit dissociated, because one could say it from a place of dissociation, that, that sense that we've been practicing, in a sense of, oh, this moment is like this. This moment is like this. And I wonder what your own similar story is like that. Because gains and losses are something that mark and appear in all of our lives. A story like that can just be an encouragement to see, well, can I practice faring more evenly midst the unevenness of gains and losses? And of course, um, many of the people in mindfulness courses that you may teach, particularly if you're teaching in the NHS, have had to bear the unbearable in terms of losses. And part of the gift we give them is, is to embody a truth that's larger and a possibility that's larger than the particular circumstances of our lives. I, I find very inspiring the story of the great Buddhist, Cambodian Buddhist monk, Mahagosananda, who uh, stayed in Cambodia throughout the time of the Khmer Rouge when there was such, there was such a holocaust. And, and the story, it's, it's, he, after this was over, he went into some of the refugee camps with his monks and would have, you know, people would flock to, to, to listen because the, the monks had been sort of banned, the people had been kept away from the monks during the time of the Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And, and somebody read, an, I read an account of somebody who was at one of these meetings and had this sense of, you know, the monks sitting there in front of all these people and, you know, each of them, each of these people had lost children or parents, loved ones, friends. You know, what do you say? What do you say when you're sitting up in front of people who've been through such losses? And what he did was he, he simply chanted that, that verse from the Dhammapada, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And his, he and his monks chanted that again and again and again, and the people wept and hugged each other and grieved together because the truth they were hearing was greater than their grief. The truth they was, were hearing was greater than their grief. And I think that part of the privilege of what of practicing this and of teaching this is that we're pointing towards and seeking to offer people a practice and perspective that, that is actually bigger, that can hold our triumphs and our tragedies. You know? and, that, and that part of our 
practice as teachers of mindfulness is somewhat to embody that, somewhat to embody that larger view that compassionately holds the circumstances of our lives. So, gain and loss, praise and blame. You know, it's pretty impossible, isn't it, to be a parent, um, a child, to work in a community, to be a therapist, to be a mindfulness teacher, to be in leadership roles without facing praise and blame. You know, and of course we, we want the first of those and not the, the, the second, don't we? You know? but, but the Buddha said this, he said, people find fault in a person who sits silently. People find fault in a person who speaks much. People find fault in a person who speaks moderately. Everyone in this world is at some time regarded as being at fault. There never has been or ever will be anyone who is only criticized or only praised. You know? It's a helpful reminder that, isn't it? You know? It's a helpful reminder that as the winds blow in our mindfulness glasses. You know? and, and we feel the sort of criticism of people's resistance in a certain way. And the Buddha himself faced criticism. He faced you know, a cousin who tried to kill him, you know, uh, and he, he faced blame as well as praise. And, you know, there are times when we're blamed and our actions have contributed to this, you know, and, and we get feedback and that's something to really, you know, to learn from and to listen to and to grow through. And, you know, the more mindful we are in our speech and our actions, and the more we live in line with our ethics and intentions, the more we can begin to see, and this is a journey for all of us, that praise and blame and fame and disrepute, which, you know, you could call good reputation and bad reputation, exist primarily in the perceptions of others. And they change like the wind, you know and that we can't control them. And that in a certain way, just to learn as a therapist, as a, as a mindfulness teacher, as, as I'm sure we're all in the process of learning, to, to weather the changing winds of praise and blame. You know, the changing winds of praise and blame. And the Buddha says in the verse next to the one I just read, he says, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. And it can just be so helpful to remind oneself of that, just to remind oneself of that in the midst of the experience of, of teaching. The, the fourth of these pairs, pleasure and pain, as we've explored this week, is, in many, is really the most fundamental and you know, underlies the others. And our reactivity to pleasure and pain, you know, in some ways, it feels very biologically related. And, you know, the experience of being on retreat, we, we begin to make peace with the changing dance of pleasure and pain. The, the, um, the Burmese uh, meditation teacher, U Tejaneya, who taught here in May, says this about the right attitude for meditation. He says, you have to watch and allow both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. You want only pleasant experiences? You don't even want the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is that reasonable? Is that the way of the Dharma? You know. 
And we, we can see as we've explored, you know, how, how the reactivity, particularly to unpleasant experiences, is at the root of difficulty, is at the root of, of the dukkha that we add. It's what generates the second arrow. It's the genesis of our dramas and our thought storms. Um, and, you know, one of the, the understandings that, that really gets highlighted, doesn't it, in MBCT for depression, is this sense that the greater the degree of reactivity, the greater the vulnerability to suffering. You know, they call it, they have this slightly sort of technical term phrase of the differential activation hypothesis. Get that. Which, which basically is a key piece of really understanding this piece of depressive relapse, because it's saying the more reactive we are to ordinary low mood, to the body feeling cranky in the morning, you know, the more reactive, the more vulnerable somebody who has a history of depression is to depressive relapse. And we don't have to have had experience of clinical depression to see that it's the places and relationships in our life where there's most reactivity, which are the ones where we're most vulnerable to suffering. And so this sense and, you know, the core intention of MBCT it's worth really being clear about that if we're training to teach it. What's the core intention? Well, as stated in the Green Book, it's to reduce cognitive reactivity. To put that positively, we could say, to cultivate compassionate equanimity. And that's why on a retreat like this and on an eight-week course, what we practice doing is relating to pleasant unpleasant and that which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant in different ways. Practice relating to the pleasant without the sort of addictive grasping, the planning for future pleasure. How can I intensify this or maintain it? Which the mind so easily goes to, isn't it? Just think of that first piece of chocolate, you know, and what we do with that, you know. That we can be with unpleasant Vedana without the compulsive habit of trying to get rid of and that we can be with that which is more, you know, in the, in the sense of being neither obviously pleasant or unpleasant, with, with a sense of interest and appreciation that may just be a portal into calm. And I'd like to repeat again that description that Christina has sometimes given of mindfulness as the willingness and the capacity to be equally near all events and experiences with curiosity friendliness and discernment. I think those are two really key words, the willingness and the capacity. And we can see that in a certain way, what we're developing in a retreat is the, and, and in a mindfulness practice, whether in you know, a week, eight weeks, or a lifetime, is the capacity to be with and to bring these qualities of friendliness, curiosity, and discernment to a wider and wider range of Vedana without collapsing into craving and aversion. You know, this is the cultivation of this gradual cultivation of a more boundless mindfulness that can meet a wider range of experience without collapsing into craving and aversion. And that somehow to understand that, you know, compassionate equanimity is the path to peace supports this willingness. Does that make sense? 
you know, that, that sense of the willingness and capacity to be with all events and experiences. It's almost like we need to develop at a conceptual level a steadier sense of view, you know, that sees, okay, it's equanimity rather than accumulation or pushing away that leads to greater peace. And of course, that's, that's why, in a sense, the difficulties of being on retreat are all, part, are all in the service of this, you know. The difficulties of having a schedule that doesn't say, oh, you know, just do what, do what you like, but encourages us to have a rhythm that may not go with exactly what we want to be doing at any particular moment. You know, the difficulties, the challenges of being in silence for seven days, you know. The, the, the sense of simplifying our routine, of doing jobs, of sharing rooms with people who may or may not snore, you know. This is all part of the unevenness that makes retreat a good practice ground for daily life, you know. And for saying, well, can I be with this too? Ah, oh, with this too, with this too, so that we're sort of widening our capacity, widening our capacity for equanimity in the face of the sort of uneven Vedana, the changing Vedana of experience. And we have the chance, as we've had over the last week, really to notice how it's reactivity that builds and compounds and thickens and solidifies experience and the world of the moment. And how that, you know, friendliness and non-reactivity or, or a quietening of reactivity softens experience, eases it, dissolves some of the sense of stuckness, frees the world of the moment into being process rather than being so solid. And as we've spoken about, the, the orientation to the three characteristics, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, really are, you know, they're, 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 in a sense, the most profound way to support this gradual embodying of a sense of equanimity. And, you know, in a certain way, um, you know, John spoke about how those, those views of, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self get sort of distorted, they get turned upside down through, you know, our habitual ways of seeing. And, you know, what we've been doing over the last few days is, in a sense, practicing turning things back up the right way and aligning our view with this truer seeing of the way things are. And as we said last night in the, the question period, that doesn't have just to be a matter of chance that we notice impermanence or that we notice not-self. It can be a practice. It can be a way of looking that we practice in order to establish this more, in a sense, truthful and liberating way of experiencing things. So, for instance, we can practice really noticing impermanence at the, the macro levels and the micro levels. So that it's not just conceptual, but we just, you know, in a sitting or in a moment, even in this moment, just we open to the flickering, shifting, changing, effervescent, evanescent nature of things. That sense that there's nothing that's fixed or solid or unchanging. 
And, you know, as we've, we've been through the four ways of establishing mindfulness over the last um, few days, and, you know, if you look back over them, think about all the experiences of body over the last seven days. Think about all the experiences of Vedana over the last seven days. Think about all the mind states that have come and gone, the moods that have come and gone, the expansions and the contractions, the thought streams or storms that have come and gone. Think, away, think about the way the hindrances have sort of waxed and waned at different times. Where are they all now? Where are they all now? Those things that seemed so compelling at the time, you know? It's really good to sort of take on board, keep turning towards and acknowledging just how changeable things are. Just how impermanent the things that we treat as being so solid are. That there's a passage in the Satipatthana Sutta that is repeated 13 times during the Sutta, and it's called the refrain. So it occurs after each of the contemplations, each of the body contemplations, each of the, 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 the four different ways, you know, after Vedana, mind, uh, during each of the, the, the fourth way factors that uh, Christina mentioned this morning. And it's, we haven't read it yet, so I thought I'd read it this evening, because it it's really important, you, and you can hear why. So this is, this, this is the version that comes after the, uh, the body sections, comes after each of the body sections. It says, in this way, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body internally, or he abides contemplating the body externally, or she abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or she abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or he abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in her to the extent for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness, and he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how, in regard to the body, she abides contemplating the body. Passage, as I say, keeps recurring for a reason. <laughs> and you hear how in the middle of it, what the invitation is to abide, contemplating the nature of arising and passing away. To keep turning attention to this quality of impermanence in experience. So that it really, if you like, sort of impresses itself on consciousness. So that we know it in our bones, you know. Because, and the last sentence of that sort of gives it away, because when we really see impermanence, we can see that clinging and grasping don't make much sense anymore. Because things are changing so quickly. So that sentence, you know, she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. The more we really let a sense of impermanence sink in, the more we'll notice the system inclines towards letting go. The system inclines towards releasing. 
particularly if, and this is true of all three of these reflections, there is a, a concurrent practice of metta and joy. I think this is actually a really key part of, of opening to the sense of impermanence or unsatisfactoriness or not-self, really as we've been doing, to integrate it with the practice of metta and joy. So it keeps it balanced, keeps it, in a sense, from collapsing into a sense of fear or contraction. So there is this sense of impermanence that, that highlights, if you like, the, the, the unsatisfactoriness, the, the fact that although I may believe that getting and getting rid of is the path to happiness, actually when I look and see, things are changing, so they can't fully satisfy. I cling thinking that, it, that happiness depends on getting and getting rid of. But actually, because experiences are impermanent, they can't provide the lasting satisfaction that we crave. And more and more, and you may have noticed this during the week, the sense of, mm, I could get reactive to that, but it's too much hassle. It's too much hassle to go into a drama about that. Has anyone had that feeling this week? You know? Really good thing to notice that, you know, because in daily life we don't, and so we easily launch into our habitual dramas. And just part of this reflection on this, this characteristic of unsatisfaction is that sense of, you know, it's not worth the hassle because that's not where happiness lies, you know. It's not where happiness lies. And some of you in small groups have spoken about and I think it was mentioned this afternoon, just this practice that we've mentioned about, you know, when we notice that the body has contracted into craving or aversion, just that sense of, okay, releasing the body, you know, as best we can. You know, we notice the mind state has contracted into focusing on something it wants to get or get rid of. And then, okay, remember the feet, or just open up to hear and receive sounds. To, to widen the field again. And this is really a, a way of practicing the second characteristic. You know. The attitude of allowing and letting be is another way of practicing this sense of, okay, I'm just going to allow things to be as they are. I'm just going to let things be. You know. And obviously that, that is one of the sessions in, in MBCT. And just the wisdom of that, because we can feel, what does it do? It takes the mind towards a greater equanimity, doesn't it? If there's a sense of allowing and letting be, there isn't that sense of, I've got to fix, I've got to get rid of, I've got to get. It's a sense of, okay, this is the way it is, to quote Si Wang, you know? And I'm willing to breathe with this and to know that the peace that comes from being with it with equanimity, with compassionate equanimity, is actually greater than the sort of the sense of the quick fix of pleasure that would come just from grasping after it. You know. It's challenging the ideology of lack, as Christina put it. And the third of these, the third of these um, characteristics or ways of looking, we can see these as ways of looking. And, and you get the sense of, of what I'm saying, that you can just sort of notice them by chance. And you can actually sort of practice them as ways of looking at experience. So I can practice in a sitting, sitting with the body, and just being interested in change. So I really 
what I notice, I just keep notice, noticing, is flickering and shifting and moving and pulsing and vibrating and change, you know, or the change of mood or the change of thoughts. You know, I can, can be in a sitting and just practice. Whenever I notice a tightening in the body, I just sense, okay, relax the reactivity. You know, whenever it tightens up again, relax the reactivity. Or I can be in a sitting and just practice allowing. Whatever happens, my practice for that sitting is allowing. You know? And this is a way in which we can really begin to consolidate these ways of looking deeper in the being, if you like, so that they become more embodied. And this third one is the same, this third one, anatta, or not-self, that we've spoken about. And you may remember the other night, I spoke about how these various factors co-arise and co-intensify and co-diminish together. Did, do you remember that, that piece? You know, how the craving and aversion and the clinging and the tightness in the body and the tightening of the mind and the sense of the self becoming more substantial and the sense of time becoming more urgent and the sense of the story becoming more compelling and the sense of dukkha intensifying, they all build together, they all diminish together. And coming in at the level of the self is actually a very powerful one because as we've seen and some of you commented this afternoon, just how powerful, what a powerful compounder of experience identifying with things is. I mean, that's, that was the point about the meditation cushion thing I was saying. Somebody came in, you know, the more I identify with something, the more I really take it personally, the more vulnerable the being is to suffering. You know, we could say the bigger the sense of reactivity, the bigger the sense of me, my, the bigger the dukkha. The less reactivity, craving, aversion, the less sense of me, my, the less dukkha. You know. and, and again, we need to see this again and again. Once is not enough, really, to see any of these. We need just to really almost make a practice of noticing this, because they are not the way that our as, as John explained in his talk, they're not the way that perception, untrained, tends to operate. <laughs> you know? Perception, untrained, for very good evolutionary biological reasons, tends to operate at grasping after the pleasant and pushing away the unpleasant with a strong sense of me and my behind it. And so we're sort of having to go against our conditioning in a certain way. And so this practice of not me, not mine, you know, what is it to, in a sitting, just to practice whatever comes up, just reflecting, ah, oh, not me, not mine. You know, not self. So body, not me, not mine. Not as an ideology or a doctrine, but as a therapeutic, pragmatic way of releasing clinging. Does that make sense? You know? So, ah, oh, body, not me, not mine. Vedana. Not me, not mine. The Buddha compared Vedana to being like raindrops, like on the pond outside when it was raining this week. You could see the raindrops sort of bouncing on you know, the water and changing so fast. And the Buddha said, that's like Vedana. It's, it's changing every moment so fast. We don't own it. <laughs> you know? Not me, not mine. Sense impressions. You know, in this moment, you might just try the sense of looking, seeing, Hearing, 
and just drop in the reflection, ah, oh, not me, not mine, just seeing, just hearing. It's part of what we teach in the sounds and thoughts practice in MBCT, isn't it? Just to let the sounds be just sounds. Moods and mental states, we, we notice during the week, the sense of if I don't take them personally, they're free to be like the weather, you know. Impersonal conditions arising and changing. The hindrances, the habit patterns that so easily feel like they're me or mine. I can practice in the midst of them. And some of you have spoken you know, movingly about this in, in the small groups. Just letting the habit be a habit. Not me, not mine. You know? Even intentions. You know, sometimes it can feel like behind intentions there's a sense of me or mine. You know, what if you just let intentions be just intentions? Does that make sense? It's worth playing with. If you're really going to get subtle, try playing with the intention to pay attention. Or with the intention to call things not me, not mine. Oh, even that, not me, not mine. It's an interesting one, you know. And, and possibly, you know, one can have a sense of, well, even this quality of knowing that we call consciousness or awareness, what happens if I don't even take ownership of that? Just let it be knowing. Like I let body be body and feelings be feelings. This is a a way into depth. It's a way into a quietening of the system, the push and the pull. It's a way into a, an embodied equanimity. Things open up. Things grow less substantial. Let's remember the Buddha's drive-through version of the Dharma, which somebody came as I said, ask for a quick version. Here's the drive-through version. Nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So these, th these three ways of looking, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not-self, are really you know, insight ways of looking that lead to a diminishing of reactivity and a cultivation of equanimity and a reduction of dukkha, and therefore really helpful for us as mindfulness teachers to know about. Not just to know about conceptually, though to know about conceptually is good, <laughs> you know, but to know experientially that this is the way towards peace. This is the way towards stress reduction. This is the way towards a greater freedom of heart. You know, that if we want to deepen practice, through insight, this is how to do it. So, in practical terms, how, that, how might that affect our teaching? Well, you know, as we're teaching the body scan, as we're teaching meditation practices, as we're in inquiries, how about just really highlighting the experience of impermanence? Not in some clunky way, but just in a way that just nudges perception really to register the impermanence of things. I'm sure we do this anyway, but it's just helpful to remind, I find it helpful to remind myself to do this. It's easy to forget, isn't it? You know? Impermanence at the macro and the micro levels. 
when people are talking about home practice, when people look back over eight weeks of a course. Helpful just to remind, to highlight that things change. Really to cultivate this sense of allowing and letting be, relaxing reactivity. You know, very helpful to, to bring that awareness into guiding practices, to engaging in inquiry, in mindfulness teaching. This sense of disidentification, or as they say in cognitive therapy, decentering from thoughts and moods and habits and body sensations, even from awareness itself. You know, in the language of MBCT, the movement from treating thoughts as facts to treating thoughts as mental events. Do we feel how that's connected with this sense of, rather than it being me and mine, what if it's just a thought pattern, a thought bus? that I happen to get on and get carried away by, but it's not actually me or mine. You know? So, really helpful. If, if we have a sense of wanting to deepen our own practice through insight ways of looking and support that those in our classes to deepen their practice through insight, really to keep in mind that these are the, these are the, the gateways, these are the templates. The, the, the word contemplate which is used to translate the, the Pali word anupassana that John gave us. Contemplate with a template, you know, to see experience through a particular filter that helps to align the view or align the understanding with the, the way things are. You know, really helpful to know about. And really important to keep all these practices connected with the heart, to keep equanimity really deeply contextualized with the other Brahma-Viharas that Christina spoke about last night of friendliness, of compassion, of appreciative joy. Because these four qualities have a dynamic and interacting and balancing relationship. Equanimity is important to help prevent friendliness, compassion and joy from becoming distorted into what are called the near or far enemy states. So states that are, are, are either very similar to or very different from those states of friendliness, compassion and joy. And that those states of friendliness, compassion and joy can collapse into these near or far enemy states when they encounter intensities of pleasant or unpleasant Vedana. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for, for metta, the near enemy state would be attachment, wouldn't it? Clinging. We know when the pleasure of friendliness is, is intense, it easily goes into clinging, doesn't it, of attachment. That's the near enemy state. The far enemy state is ill will. So, you know, when the metta, when my metta is a bit conditional, it's not yet boundless, or it's, you know, I get to the difficult person, and what happens is it flicks into ill will. So that's precisely what we're trying to do, expand the categories so that we have equanimity with the difficult person. And therefore, you know, we don't go into ill will. You know, metta becomes more boundless. Compassion. You know, what do we think the near enemy state might be of compassion? Well, if we think about it, despair. Does that make sense? You know, how easy it is in the face of suffering, because compassion is what happens when metta encounters suffering. 
You know? Easy for compassion to get burnt out, isn't it? To go into despair. You know? Or to go into pity, where we say, you know, I'm sorry about your suffering, I'm glad it's not me, sort of state. You know? does, does that make sense? And how equanimity is required to protect compassion. You know? Otherwise, compassion will, you know, if it doesn't have equanimity mixed with it, 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 you know, it collapses in the face of the intensity of suffering that we encounter. may collapse so far that it becomes its far enemy of cruelty or hatred. And some of those painful, poignant tales we've had about the collapse of care in Midstaff's hospital, you know, or old people's homes, you know, that we've had in the news in the recent years, it seems, you know, there we see what happens when compassion that may well have been there at the start of someone's career just gets burnt out. You know, burnt out through a, a lack of support, a lack of nourishment, a lack of resource, you know, goes into its far enemy state. Joy, near enemy of joy, well, in the Buddhist psychology, intoxication, where we can get a bit carried away, we can get, a, you know, it gets a bit dissociated, you know. The far enemy would be envy. You know. does, does that make sense? Can you feel that? Rather than appreciating somebody else's good fortune, I rather envy it, you know. And so mindfulness and equanimity are, are so important to balance these other qualities, to keep them in the movement towards being more and more boundless. And that's what we've been practicing in the meta practice, expanding the categories to be more and more inclusive. Yeah, and we, we can hear it. We can hear the there's a certain coolness that equanimity brings. We could hear it in the phrase that John phrases that John gave us, which included that piece about I care deeply for you, but I cannot control your happiness or unhappiness. I cannot keep you from suffering. No matter how I wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Or this too will pass is another equanimity phrase. And we can feel there's a coolness, isn't there, that is intended to protect and support the warmth, the compassionate responsiveness. And metta, compassion, joy are very important to prevent equanimity itself from slipping into its near enemy state of indifference. Do we know that one? How can we not, you know? Can so easily happen, can't it, that we can unconsciously, in the face of the intensity of suffering or, you know, the inconvenience of suffering that we encounter, the scale of it, it's easy to slip into indifference, isn't it? And the Buddhist psychology points to it, the same word in Pali means both indifference and equanimity. Isn't that interesting? Sort of points to how easy it is you know, I may appear authentically calm and equanimous and may believe that the suffering of others doesn't really touch me because I'm not attached to how things are, you know. But when I look, I find that in fact there's little real care and, and connection and instead there's an indifference based on a fear and aversion that may even justify itself in sort of spiritual language. And I appreciate Donald Rothberg's book, um, the engaged spiritual life, because he says these, these are some of the forms that indifference can take. 
So this, these near-enemy qualities of equanimity, privileged distance, denial, complacency, resignation, acquiescence, numbness, intellectual aloofness, rationalization, cynicism, dogmatism, fear of strong emotions, particularly anger. It's a sobering list that, isn't it? You know, and, and we, can, we can see how you know, these are inevitable and understandable defenses that, in a sense, we all need to be mindful of and to practice with. You know? They create a sense of self and other that can keep me in passivity. Isn't it so easy to have that sense? Well, somebody was saying to me the other day, you know, about the forthcoming climate talks in Paris, you know, with the diminishing chance of, the fast diminishing chance of preventing a rise above two degrees Celsius, you know, of, of our planet's warming. He said to me, of course, two degrees is the temperature at which the rich start to be affected. You know, before then, there are many, many, many millions of people uh, and many, many millions of animals and species and ecosystems that, whose worlds are being destroyed now. You know, for whom this is not some future event that I may or may not have to deal with. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an apocalypse now, you know. And how easy it is for me to live at a privileged distance from that. How easy it is, you know, and not to be affected by it. I really appreciated at the Chester Mindfulness Conference that Christina gave the keynote and she challenged us in the mindfulness community really to be attentive to who feels excluded from our mindfulness classes, from the mindfulness community. You know, maybe because of race, maybe because of economics, maybe because of issues of physical access. Because it's all too easy for me to have unconscious white privilege or unconscious middle class privilege and not to see who feels excluded, you know. And that's not equanimity, you know. That's not equanimity. Christina sometimes quotes her saying that I'm sure comes from her, but she attributed it this afternoon to somebody else that Buddhas don't live in the suburbs of Dukkha. They live downtown. You know, they live downtown. Uh, and that the, cha the challenge really is to practice and to engage. You know, there, there is a critique of mindfulness that is developed in the media that says that it tends towards a certain social passivity and quietism. You know, contemplatives have often turned away from the world and placed the locus of interest internally. You know. James Hillman wrote that book in the 1990s. We've had a hundred years of psychotherapy and the world is getting worse. You know, because people, a generation, took their sense of dukkha to their therapists and disengaged from political, social, environmental activism that's required, you know. Don't let the future look back on this time of mindfulness and say the same thing of us, you know. I'm saying that to myself, you know, <laughs> and to all of us. Please, you know, let's, 
Let's see, well, there's that beautiful story which I love, the Zen story of, of the student asking the, the master, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? It's a big question. You know, what's the goal of a lifetime of doing what we're doing? And the answer comes back, an appropriate response. And what a beautiful vision for our lives, that actually, um, for our practice, that actually what they're about is cultivating an increasingly appropriate and skillful responsiveness to the changing conditions that we encounter in our lives. You know, a responsiveness that includes both deep compassion and deep equanimity. That includes, in a sense, all these Brahma-Vihara states that so mutually in, interdepend and together you know, constitute the crown jewels of the Dharma. So that we could say, you know, the goal of a lifetime's practice internally is, is a friendly, compassionate, joyful equanimity that can respond appropriately. Thich Nhat Hanh with typical clarity just puts it like this. What we need is a very cool head and a very warm heart. And isn't that what we have the privilege of practicing as we teach mindfulness or work with other people in the different ways that we do? So in conclusion, you know, it seems this theme of equanimity that has been, I, I hope, I hope, you have a sense of how this sort of, in a sense, all that we've been doing this week really threads onto this theme of cultivating a compassionate equanimity. You know, it's all in the service of this. You know. Cultivating it as, as an, you know, an appropriate, the best and most appropriate response we can muster to the particular lives we're living. Because this theme asks us, how are we going to practice relating to what each of us is given in this life? To what we're given and to what we're not given. What relationship with this, what relationship with this are we going to practice? The Dharma suggests that maybe contentment and well-being don't really lie in just trying to accumulate the pleasant and push away the unpleasant but in a deep orientation to compassionate equanimity. And what's so beautiful about that is that then all experiences, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, can potentially support this and be opportunities for developing it. And yes, we do need to practice great patience and compassion in the midst of our reactivity. We need great equanimity about our lack of equanimity. great equanimity about our lack of equanimity and great compassion for it but as we practice and teach maybe this path of mindfulness this path of friendly, joyful compassionate equanimity we may discover that our capacity for a fundamental well-being doesn't ultimately depend on the circumstances of our lives but on our relationship with those circumstances. And we may discover that it's increasingly possible 
to stand in the middle of this life that we're living with a heart that's deeply loving and deeply free. So let's just sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.